John chapter 12, we've been going verse by verse through the Gospel of John. Um, If you're new and you're enjoying it, you can also go back on our podcast. And then I think we started doing a good job at posting it. Uh, We found a way, a new way to put it to our website. And so there's a good ways back in John, and then maybe we'll go back and peel off some more uh, at a later time. Last week, in verses 24 through 26, we talked about how Jesus explained why he is willing to face death. And we talked about he was implying that his Father has more for him and for all who will believe in him than this present life. And he was like, listen, I am going to do the Father's work. And so he talks about the extent that he's willing to. And so we're going to read verses 27 through 36 today and talk about how he talks about the Son of Man must be lifted up. So let's read the text together. John chapter 12. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Now as we read this text and as we dive into this, um, you need to know this is the Gospel of John. A disciple who is one of the youngest disciples of Jesus. Um, He is the one that's pictured at the communion table of the Last Supper, leaning against Jesus and doesn't have the beard. He has the baby face. Um, And he writes this gospel so that you would read it and, and anyone who would have read it would believe in Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by they doing that would have life in his name. So as he writes that, you know that coming to this text, there are things that he's saying in this text that he, even he, in the moment when he heard these things, saw Jesus do it, but didn't understand what Jesus was up to, but then later had his spiritual aha moment and said, oh my gosh, and then the Holy Spirit moves him because the Scripture says that the Scripture is God-breathed and that These men wrote as the Holy Spirit moved them to write the Scriptures. So he's now writing this Gospel and he's saying, Oh my goodness! The Holy Spirit is moving through him and he's going, He did this speaking about the death he was going to die. And I want to say that because some of us go, you know, God's like writing your story right now. And you're confused and you don't know what's going on. But then there's awesome moments when the Lord lets you slow down and go, have a spiritual aha moment where you go, oh my gosh, that's what you were up to over there and over there and over there. I had no idea that you were putting that person in my life and this person in my life and this opportunity to do and that opportunity to do. It all makes sense, God. And God's like, uh, uh-huh. 
You know, <laughs> I don't know if that's how he is. It's just in my head, right? I'm working it out in my own theology. But the thing I want you to see here is that Jesus is expressing something. He is expressing his resolve. At this crucial hour, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came. So Father, just glorify your name. He's like, I'm not backing out. This is exactly what I'm here to do. I'm here to redeem these people. I'm here to bring about all things. And he says, my soul is troubled in the text. Jesus knew of the agonies of the cross. Interesting enough that John doesn't tell us about the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But I believe these verses here, 27 through 28, are John's recollections of this. And you say, well, that's kind of interesting because we're already there. It's in chapter 12. You need to know that John's going to devote about 50% of this gospel to the very last of Jesus. Now, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. They do a good job at telling you sort of a, a chronology look at Jesus, and some of them rush to things quicker than others. Luke does the most exhaustive um, because Matthew is written for the Jew in mind. Mark is written for the Romans in mind. Luke is written for the Greeks in mind. John is written with Jesus in mind. They all talk about Jesus, but no book of the Bible in the New Testament talks more about the life and ministry of Jesus than the Gospel of John. If you're new to your faith, this is the book I would tell you to read. This is the the testament to go to because in this, we see so many cool things about God working in the life of Jesus. We see Jesus as the eternal God, the Son made flesh. We see that He is 100% divine, but also 100% human. Clark even comments on this in his commentary. He says about the my soul being troubled. As a man, he was troubled at the prospect of a violent death. As a man. He was troubled. I want you to see this. I mean, Jesus is saying, my soul is troubled. But He also knows it's the Father's will and plan. And why do I say that? Because so often people go, well, if it's God's plan, you know, it's going to lead to just, you know, up and to the right. But no, that's not how God, that's how American work. That's how America works. God's not always up and to the right. Uh, If that would be the case, your boy Joseph would say it really wasn't all up and to the right until the very end of his life, didn't he? So we see times and times of examples all throughout the Scripture. And he says, what shall I say, Father, you know, save me from this hour? The cross, which had cast this shadow over the entire life and ministry of Jesus, is now going to become a reality in the experience. You remember when um, very, very first early on, the first miracle, the wedding at Cana? And Jesus turns water into wine, and they, you know, he, he makes the good stuff because they go, whoa, you guys, you guys bring the good stuff out at the end. Usually they do that at the beginning so you can do the cheap stuff later. You guys are doing something crazy. Uh, Jesus is even telling Mary in that moment, at the very onset of his ministry, the thing you're wanting me to talk about, Mary, is not ready to talk about yet. And so Jesus knows at just the right time he's going to do this. Um. One person says in their comment of this, he says, it seems clear that these words represent a rhetorical question, a hypothetical prayer at which Jesus looks, but which he refuses to pray. 
One guy says, the very object of his incarnation, the reason of his coming into the world and of his continuance to this hour was to meet this suffering. Jesus is not running from it. He's running to it. And the death of Jesus on a cross, you need to hear this today, was not an accident. It was planned. It was an appointment. Jesus even says, I don't, um, no one takes my life. I lay it down willingly and then I'll raise it up too. That's something noble. We hear people say things all the time like, I'd be willing to die for my family, for my God, for my country. But none of us can say, and I'll take it back up again. Right? You'd be like, man, you're crazy. And he says, Father, glorify your name in the text. Just think about this for just one second. As he thought about the cross just a few days away, his main concern is to glorify the Father. To glorify the name and the character of God. That's his main concern. I I think this is important because if you're going to understand in the Christian faith that we're called to be Christ-like, then you have to know what Christ was like. That's so good, I'll say that again. If we're going to be Christ-like, then we have to know what Christ was like. And his main concern, as he's about to pay for the sins of all the world, is just, Father, would you just glorify your name? Would you let people know who you really are? And so he's now expressing in this text, here's what I want you to catch. He has a resolve to do God's will. Can I ask you a question? Do you have a resolve to do God's will? Have you resolved as a believer in Christ? Listen, uh, we sing this every time we go to Brookfield. I'm going to Brookfield Assisted Living on Tuesday to do a chapel. We do the first and third Tuesdays of every month. And we every time we sing, no matter what we're singing, we got two electives we'll throw out there, but we're at least singing two hymns. Um, I think it's like 176, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And then um, 447, I believe, is what it is. Trust and obey. That is, that's, those have to be there because those were the favorite hymns of a couple ladies there. And there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. There's nothing more peculiar for me to observe than to watch a believer that is yet really to step into what God really has for them because they look so frustrated with life and they can't figure it out but it's because they're not all in yet. You weren't made for this world. You're in this world, but you're not of this world. Do we believe that, saints? I mean, is that really a part? Do I really have a citizenship in heaven? Am I really going to store up treasures? Am I really going to seek His kingdom and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven? That takes a great resolve, friend, to happen. It will come at cost. It will come at all those things. And even Jesus says this to the people who say they want to follow Him. He says, stop and consider the cost before you build it. That's what He says about builders. And He says, you need to stop and count the cost before you come off following Me. Because it's going to cost you. I have a friend of mine, he trains people how to witness to people um, on the streets. He's like one of the best street evangelist guys I know. 
uh, it's because he has like a lot of magic tricks and he's also like the most conversational guy ever. In fact, he's the only guy that ever seen clever enough to prop up people's names. Like if he walked up to Elliot, he'd be like, hi, uh, what's your name? And, he, and he's like, Elliot. And if he knows he really wants to talk to Elliot, and he, but he doesn't know what to ask Elliot yet, and he's not listening to the Spirit just yet the way he wants to, he'll, he'll go, how long have you had that name? And then while you're thinking about why he asked you that question, I've watched people go, they laugh, they chuckle, you know, and they sit there. And then all he's doing is like, okay. And then all of a sudden, boom, he engages, and he starts sharing the gospel with people. One time I watched him do this. And he had this person like really ready to pray and receive Jesus. And he said, okay, but can I stop and tell you something? Are you sure you really want to do this? I'd like to try to talk you out of it for a second. And I was like, what is he doing? I was like, you cannot do this. Please don't try to talk this. The person's ready. And he said, because if I've talked you into this today, someone else will talk you out of it too. And I want you to know that this may hurt you. People may abandon you. People may make fun of you. You may get persecuted. You may lose things like things that you value may be gone. That You may feel like there's moments where everything is caving in on you. And, and you just need to know like God is with you. But it could be really, really tough following Jesus. And I'm like, dude, you need to shut up. We need to pray with this person. But then I realized, man... If God has chosen this person before the foundation of the world that they would be conformed to His image, then we need to make clear that they understand what God is calling them into and that they walk into this knowing that it may come at a great cost. It's not necessarily a fun sermon to tell you today because you you may want me to say it's all chipper and you may want me to do some clickbait stuff, but I'm just telling you this is real. This stuff is hard. And it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of self-examination, being honest with myself, being vulnerable with those who are walking in community with me. The next part of the text, though, the Father here testifies to Jesus in a voice from heaven. I mean, think about this. This, this is the third audible divine testimony to Jesus' status as the Son of God. Like, if that's not clear, uh, it's something cool and special is going on in the Gospel of John. You had it at His baptism. You have it at His transfiguration, and you have it here, an audible voice. And the voice says, I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. But the text tells us that uh, this voice didn't come because of me, it came for your sake. I think that's interesting, because to some, the text says that the voice sounded like thunder. Others thought it sounded like some sort of angelic speech. And then other people heard exactly what they needed to hear. Let me say it like this, for those who could discern it, it gave them confidence in Jesus before these critical days that were coming up. I have racked my brain around this text because I just, you know, open up all kinds of Pandora boxes. We go through the scriptures together, uh, you know, Monday or even sometimes Sunday night. I already know the next portion I'm going to carve out and I start dwelling on it. And this is one that I had where I dwelled on and I was like, God, if you would just do that more often you know, it would really work out a lot better. Like if we could just be like, okay, church, and at the end of the service, God conclude it with whatever you have to tell us. I mean, like if we heard that sort of thing, but even in this moment, in this moment, some think it's thunder, some think it's angelic speech, and only a few are understanding what it really is. 
And so even uh, Jesus talks about the rich man and the, and the poor man and the and, and Laz, rich the poor man and the rich man and in in Luke and he talks about how the the poor man ate from the scraps of the table and then the rich man uh, he he passes away and he's at Abraham's uh, he can see across the poor man's at Abraham's bosom which is uh, speaking of heaven and God's presence and here he is and here's what he's begging he's saying would you please go and send some big angelic moment. Someone to go witness to my friends so that they will not come to this bad place. And then Jesus replies, he says, but they have Moses and the prophets. And if they won't believe them, they won't believe anything. Can I just say this before we get lost in that Pandora? Then this is where I had to come to conclude. God is God. And he knows what works. And he can be trusted. And he leaves no one behind. And so I don't have to dwell on those things so, so much, but I have to also think about passages like Hebrews, if you like having some bonus text here today. Uh, Hebrews writer writes these beautiful words at the beginning of this. Listen to this. It says in the first four verses, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He has also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He has given the name that is above every name. And as we dwell on those things, as we think about those things, I don't have my phone. Can you hear me? Is my phone down there? Um, As we dwell on those things, there's a good book uh, that I would recommend. Charles Stanley wrote a book uh, called How to Listen to God. So if you're a note taker and you want to write down a good book to read, uh, How to Listen to God. And another book I recommend um, is Robert Morris wrote a book. He's a pastor of Gateway Church in Texas. And he wrote a book called Frequency. Frequency. And he did a sermon series. If you don't like to read books, guess what it was called? Frequency. Yeah, frequency. And so uh, in his book, he talks about tuning into the frequencies of heaven so that you could hear God speak. And can I just say this? I'm going to take this pastoral pedantic moment to say this. God still speaks today. And someone says, well, do you hear audible voices? No, it's much louder than that. And listen to the way Robert Morris says, 10 ways, 10 powerful ways that God speaks. He says this, number one, God speaks through circumstances. You've heard that whole illustration. Uh, the flood was coming and the boat comes by and says, the flood's coming, you better get in the boat. You know, and they're like, oh no, God's going to save me. Okay. And then the flood gets up there, they're up on the roof, you know, and the waters engulf the house and they drop a rope down. Get the rope, grab the rope. The flood is, you know, it's rising. No, God's going to save me. And then, you know, the helicopter flies off because they're like, they're crazy, you know, and, and then they drown and they, they go to heaven. And they say, hey, where were you? God's like, I sent a boat, a helicopter, and you said no to both, right? You know, sometimes circumstances are right there in front of us. Uh, number two, God speaks through wise counsel. Wise counsel. God can speak through people who are mature in their faith, 
who love the Lord, and you know they love the Lord, and they give you wise counsel. Number three, God speaks through peace. We see this time and time again that people can say, well, I have peace. Number four, God can speak through people. God can speak through people. The pattern, constantly we see that. Number five, God can speak through dreams and visions. And yes, that does happen. All right? Number six, God can speak through our thoughts. So our thoughts. Uh, Not every thought you have is your thought. It could also be a thought from the enemy. And it can be a thought from the Holy Spirit. And that's why the Scripture says, take all your thoughts and bring them in captive to obedience to Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we're doing that. We're bringing all those things in. But I'll tell you, any thought from the enemy is speaking at you. Any, any voice from the Lord is speaking for you. I'm just rapid firing here for you. Number seven, God can speak through natural manifestations. Number eight, God can speak through supernatural manifestations. Number nine, God can speak through the Bible. That's the one that all Baptists are comfortable with. But no, it's only one of ten. Right? Number ten, God can speak through a whisper. A whisper. When you're in one of authority, you don't have to shout down the people that really need to hear you. They should listen. And so often, we we don't think God speaks. So we stop praying. We stop seeking. And we miss this incredible supernatural connection that we can have with the Lord. That no one can explain it. And so, here we find in this text, Hebrews, that that the Scriptures talk about God has spoken through Jesus. He has spoken through His Word. He speaks through us all the way when we look through the Word and many other ways. If you want to dive into it, I recommend Robert Morris' stuff on frequency. And if you want to tether that with a balance, because I don't necessarily believe everything he believes, then go read Charles Stanley. He's a good old faithful guy. Uh, and and, and he, you can read him too on his book, How to Listen to God. I recommend both resources. It would benefit you greatly. Moving on though, Jesus also plainly proclaims his death here. He says, now the judgment of this world. When he says this world, what is, what is he talking about? He's talking about this world, or the Scripture says, to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Romans 12, 2, what's it saying? This world speaks of a culture that's in opposition to Jesus. It's the people, it's an idea, it's a group that says, we can do life without God. And it runs in tandem, parallel with the kingdom of God, because there's this, there's this world. And that's why the Scripture says you're not of this world. You're of this one. But you're in this world. And it also says you shine like stars in this world. But you need to know why that's important because also this culture has a leader. There's a ruler of this world. Um, These passages are worth touching in your Bible and underlining or marking, it's okay, your Bible's a workbook, you don't go to hell for writing in it. Second uh, Corinthians 4, reading in verse 4, he says, uh, in their case, the God of this world, that's a lower G, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
And so he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And so he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I've talked about this before on a Wednesday night back in the earlier spring, that millennials, my generation, believe that evangelism, the idea of sharing the gospel and the message of Jesus to people, is unethical. Yet also in the same study acknowledged, like 70-some percent of them, acknowledged the most monumental moment of their life is when someone shared with them about Jesus. If you go, well, that's just crazy. Welcome to my gen, right? But can I say why I'm compelled to tell people about Jesus? Because, man, they've been blinded and they can't see it lest the light shines. And, and what good is it if we're not going to tell them about it? Not only that, Ephesians is worth touching as well. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds every one of us in verse 2, uh, let me read verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We all were at once dead in our sins. We were all at once under the leadership of the idea of Satan and what he's up to and in the sons of disobedience. Uh, how do we see this in chapter 6? Chapter 6, it says uh, in verse 12. Uh, well, verse, I'll read verse 10 and 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Nobody wants to acknowledge that. But I'm telling you, if you go out and you proclaim Christ, the clearest moments that I have faced demonic oppression, and I have experienced demon possession in my life, and I didn't know what to do, is when I was proclaiming Christ and Him crucified, and in Christ alone can you be saved. I called every Baptist friend I had when I met this person that I was sharing this with and this particular ministry we were involved in. None of them knew what to do. So then I called all of my charismatic friends. Because I was like, okay, well, y'all don't have to do this. And I was even talking to Jeff, and him and I were talking about this because he's been on the mission field, and he deals with some of the rough of the rough. And I like the way he says it. He says, the enemy... Uh, a lot of people say, well, I've never seen any of that kind of stuff in my life. I didn't know that stuff is even real. Um, he doesn't have to show his teeth to those he has fooled. But when you take the sheep's clothing, uh, when you become the sheepdog in the kingdom instead of a sheep, and you become a sheepdog and you start looking and ministering and waging in the spiritual kingdom of stuff, listen, you're going to find some teeth. And I'm not trying to spook us today, but I'm just trying to tell you, you know what Jesus has said? He says, this great adversary of you is cast out. And what he means, and I think by this, is this, that Satan was cast out of any rightful authority that he has over this world because of what Jesus did on the cross. We can push back darkness. How do I know that? 
Colossians 2, 14 and 15, describes the defeat of Satan at the cross. It says this, Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This is what Jesus has done on the cross. I'm just trying to peel back some layers here for you for a moment. And I want you to see there is a spiritual world. And how do I know this? How is it at play in so many things? I have walked so many people over the last several weeks through interpersonal relationship conflict. This is the silent killer for the American church. He doesn't have to show you teeth. He just gets you mad at somebody that you're close to and shuts that off and then starts restricting the flow of the Holy Spirit in your life because you're grieving the Spirit because you are at odds with somebody else who you used to care about, but now you don't care about anymore because you need to know there's the Holy Spirit in me and there's the Holy Spirit in you, but there's also the Holy Spirit in us. And if we're at odds, I'm not really at odds with you. I'm at odds with the Holy Spirit because I won't make it right with you. And now I've restricted the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Because now I'm going to have to be hypocritical and act like I have a clear conscience with all the people I think I'm walking with. But really I know, and God knows, and I know, that's not true. Can I just tell you? You don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You're wrestling against evil. And you need to make those things as best you can to live at peace with all men, to live that quiet, peaceful life. You need to become clear before people. You need to say this, hey, I need you to help me understand because honestly, my brain went here, but I know you and I don't want it to be that way. And, and, and could you help me understand your perspective? And then when the other person shares it, there can be something, at least something of a new beginning that takes place where they're not at odds anymore. And you say, how do you get all of this out of this text? And I would just tell you that Jesus is saying he's defeating a ruler of this world. And who is it? It is Satan. But my generation doesn't even believe he exists. So he's just having his heyday with them. And we just need to open our eyes. One writer says this, What would things look like if Satan really took control over a city? Over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was also broadcasted on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, which is where he pastored, all the bars would be closed, pornography would be banished, pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing, and the children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. He says, there you go. That's what he would do. And how many Americans would sign up for that and say it was great? Where Christ is never preached. Welcome to the leadership of Satan. I'm just telling you, Jesus is saying the Son of Man is going to be lifted up so He can be defeated. So when you say lifted up, what does that mean? I think it means a deliberate double meaning. Elevation as being raised up on a cross, as John would talk about. And exaltation, being raised in rank and honor. 
where Jesus is lifted up. He says this in the text. He would draw all people to himself. Can I just say this today? God is for all people. Not just the people that look like you or like me, who talk like me or talk like you, or all people. So often we have given up and we've marginalized certain groups of people or people that do certain things that God couldn't work in their life. And so we've given up on those people and we look for people that are pretty close and similar to us, but maybe just need to be brought into our club. And that is not evangelism. That is, that is, that is American mentality at its finest. Birds of a feather flock together. The cross is a cross culture. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you are. I don't care who your mom was or your dad was. I don't care how much money you have or how much money you don't have. I don't care what the color of your skin is. I, I need you to know that we care for all people. I don't care where you are in this moment. I want you to know that God cares for you. You hear people say things like this. Well, if a person like that came to our church, if you say that, you probably need to keep looking for a church because we're going to open our doors up. We're going to open our hearts. You know, you're going to get hurt living a life like that, preacher. I already have. But I've learned I'm never more like Christ than when I'm being hurt doing God's work. He can heal me. He can strengthen me. He can restore me. He can put me right back in the game. And he says this continually, just lift me up. I continually pray with Daryl and other people. And and when you see me praying at the altar, I'm praying, God, would you move not only in my life, would you move in my family's life? God, would you move in our church family's life? God, would you bring people in our fellowship that we need to go and yoke up together in the kingdom? God, would you just, I'm, I'm pleading. I'm desperate because I've learned this. God answers prayer. And so you just pray. John says in the text, he said that signifying the death he was going to die. Jesus knew the painful and the humiliating manner of his death, and he still obeyed God's will. I can't fathom that. I'm actually glad God doesn't tell me everything. You know, that verse that everybody misquotes out of context, um, Habakkuk 1, I think it's like 1, 5 or 1 something. It's one of those early verses in 1 where he says, um, I'm going to do a great and mighty thing that even if I was to tell you, you wouldn't believe. And people love to sign that onto a card like, yeah, love you, Mike. Here you go. Listen, he's talking about judgment. He was going to bring a judgment upon those people because they wouldn't get their hearts right. And it was such a big judgment. They wouldn't believe it if he, if he told them. So in context, it's probably not the best verse to write on a card. But, I, the, but the principle remains that God is up to more than He's ever let you know that He's up to. And I'm grateful that that be true because, here's the deal, I don't think I'd believe Him. Or rather, if I did hear it, I might get spooked up about it. And then these last several verses that kind of talk about here in 34 and 36, they're kind of talking about will the Messiah live forever? They're confused. Everything they've been told are, are, are passages that were selected out of the law in the Old Testament, and they didn't know about passages um, like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 that talk about, yeah, God is going to send a Messiah, but also this Messiah is a suffering servant. 
He, he is one who will be bruised and, and beaten and mocked. And, and we lean into this. They didn't hear this. And so this crowd is enthusiastically greeting a political conqueror and they didn't want a sacrificial death. They're like, we've seen what you can do and we want what you can do for us. One, one guy says it this way. He says, we should long for God's presence, not His presence. His presence, not His presence. Do you love God because of what He can do for you? Or do you love the Lord for who He is? Have you ever encountered the idea that everything that Jesus did was on purpose? Yes, I mean, God accepts every one of us right where we are. But the Scripture talks about how, you know, He loves us in a way that He won't leave us in that condition either. My questions are these. One, have you ever really truly come into a relationship where you turned from your own ways and your own thoughts and your own leadership and trusted Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior? If not, then listen, everything else I've just said to you, you're not held accountable to because this is the most accountable thing you'll ever have to deal with. It all starts here. I watched that couple yesterday get married and they stood up there sharing these vows with one another yet not really having walked through difficult moments of sickness and poorness and the life raining down on them. But they're saying I do to all of it, aren't they? And some of you are married and going, darn right they are. Set them down a couple, ten years later or so. You say, hey, those vows mean more to you now than they did on that day one? Absolutely. It's the same thing when I... When I asked the Lord to be my personal Lord and Savior, there wasn't an angelic voice from heaven, but there was a real connection with Him that I never had before. And that connection has grown. It's changed my life. I don't have a religion, if that's what you think I have today. I have a relationship with Jesus. It's not a religion. Religion is man's attempt to please God. Christianity is a relationship of God reaching down to man and calling him to follow him. Have you ever done that? Man, then do that. If you've done that, have you resolved to be Christ-like? When you look at this text and you feel it, do you, do you have that spirit that, that is the same spirit that's in Christ Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit that's working in Him? Do you realize the Holy Spirit's working in you? Do you slow down? Do you let Him speak into your life? Do you have this kingdom resolve to not give up even when it's hard, even when you know what you're about to have to do? Or you go, man, I don't know, I'm not there yet. Then man, talk to the Lord about that. I'm here, I'm always available to you. It's not just on Sunday mornings. You, we, can have, we can have a sit down and we can talk about that. But the Holy Spirit has gifted you. And you're a part of this thing called the body of Christ. And that body of Christ doesn't just sit down and hear a Sunday sermon. That body of Christ moves and ministers to a lost and hurting world. Let's pray together.